0: All right. In the last hour, we started working on the Palestinian Covenant, page two hundred and fifty of the nineteen seventeen Schofield Reference Bible. If you're using that edition, um, we we understand that the Palestinian. Well, I'll just. I'm going to go cover some of it. and We're going to try to correct something or try to fix something. Uh, Stacy sent me a message about why maybe there was a problem in Deuteronomy thirty verse three. So we'll look at it and see maybe why there, uh, we can try to fix it or at least try to understand because it would be very important. All right, so let's just do a quick reminder. The Palestinian covenant gives what? It gives conditions under which Israel entered the land of promise, right? That, the reason I'm trying to show you that weird thing because remember, on one hand, there's an unconditional aspect of the Abrahamic covenant, Right? But yet there's conditions when they enter into the land, which seems to then say, wait a minute, then was it an unconditional promise? I want you to understand that possible conflict, and we think we know how to work around that, right? It is important to see that the nation has never yet taken the land under the unconditional Abrahamic covenant, nor has it ever possessed the whole land. What are the scriptures given to prove that they never had the whole land? Genesis 15, 8. Numbers 34, 1 through 12. Israel has never had the land. er, 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 There should be no debate on that. Israel has never possessed the land. Do they possess it today? Not even close, all right? Now, the Palestinian covenant is broken down into how many parts? Seven parts. Part number one of the Palestinian covenant is dispersion for disobedience. The scriptures for that was verse 1 of Deuteronomy chapter thirty. Let's read it again. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 1. And it shall come to pass, when all these things are come upon thee, the blessings and the curse, right? Or curses, depending on your, I guess, translation. Which I have set before thee, and thou shalt call them to mind among all the nations, whether the Lord thy God hath driven thee, right? Right? In other words, this is demonstrating and showing that there's going to be a dispersion for their disobedience. They're going to be driven from the land. Everybody got Deuteronomy 30, verse 1? Okay. Now, the next part of the uh, covenant, or the Palestinian covenant, not only is there dispersion for disobedience, and we can also look at Deuteronomy 28, 63 through 68, but we won't go, uh, we won't review all of that right now. The second part of the Palestinian covenant the future repentance of Israel, look at chapter 30, verse 2, and shall return, so they're going to be uh, the nations, whether the Lord thy God hath driven thee, and shall return unto the Lord thy God, uh, and, to, and to return unto the Lord thy God and shall obey his voice according to all that I command thee this day, thou and thy children with all thine heart and with all thy soul. Seemingly to refer to some kind of future repentance. He does not go into greater detail other than verse two, but the rest of the uh, points of the covenant seems to clearly demonstrate this, all right? Now, here comes number three. This is the most important part of the Palestinian covenant, right? So number one, Dispersion for disobedience. Number two, the future repentance. And number three, the return of the Lord. Deuteronomy 30, verse three. And this is where I think there may be a problem depending on your translation. All right, verse three. That then the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity and have compassion upon thee and will return. NIV does not use the word return. Okay. So this is a major problem. Okay. Well, it, him returning is very different than him gathering. No, 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 no. That, that is referring to him. Ret- Remember the whole point of the Palestinian covenant is that he has to return. Remember we spent the whole hour with that. Like, like that's the most, that's the major issue. Yeah, this is massive. Right? This is massive. All right. So, let's let's look I'm going to read Deuteronomy 33 again. All right? So, let's make sure we all have this down. All right, if we if we all we do is cover this verse for the next hour, then that's what we have to do, all right? We have to get this down. Deuteronomy 33. That then the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity and have compassion upon thee. Everyone okay with that? That seems pretty simple and straightforward. Yes? He's going to do what? He's going to restore. He's going to re, re, return you from your captivity. Okay, but here's the key part: and will return and gather thee. We believe that, and Schofield uh, interpreted it this way. Um, I think Sarah's agreed with this that that return there is referring to God returning. He's going to return. And will gather thee from all the nations, whether the Lord thy God hath scattered thee. Now, I'm going to look at this in under BibleHub.com, so we can see every English translation that has ever been produced in the history of the church. Uh, hang on one second; uh, it'll it'll be it'll be the first one it mentions. All right. All right, so the NIV has Deuteronomy 33 this way. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. The New Living Translation. uh, Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes. He will have mercy on you and gather you back from all the nations where he scattered you. The ESV, that the Lord your God will restore your fortunes, have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. The Berean Standard, then he will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you from all the nations which the Lord your God has scattered you. King James, then the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity, have compassion on thee, and will return and gather thee from all nations. New King James, the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity, have compassion on you, and gather you again from all nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. So you can see that almost all the English translations, and I can go all the way down, do not have the return part. Well, even though that, that he have other oh, he does have other verses. I'm just saying, it's... Right. Well, I'm just saying the minute you can, the minute you can throw this out, then people can start building a, a different eschatology. So, um, so it, it's a big, it's a big deal because I mean that's the very first verse he uses. Now he also used the rest. Remember the rest of the scriptures he offered. He he used Amos chapter nine verses nine through fourteen, Acts fifteen. Acts fifteen is not near as clear. Amos is much more clear. I think Amos is is the go to. He, he referenced Acts fifteen because Acts fifteen quotes what. So there you have it. I wish it was simple. I wish verse three would just be like. I mean, this is one of the major problems in theology. No one can. If, if we can't agree on how a verse should be translated, can we agree on how the verse can be interpreted? No, we can't. If we if we can't agree on how it's translated, we can't agree on how it's interpreted. Right? There's no way. Well, I believe. Well, well, yeah, I mean, I believe Revelation 19, but remember, most a lot of people would say Revelation 19 is not a literal. That's all figurative. It's all symbolic. So it's not a literal, and it's not even chronological. So then, and then some will say Revelation 19 happened in 70 AD, which again, that doesn't make any sense to me. I, right, if, I don't even understand how you make that even work, right? But you get the idea. So I, Schofield, he, he believes 3 has a very specific part that that the Lord will return to, to make this happen. I, this is what we can say. We can be dogmatic about the following. Number one, was Israel dispersed from the land? Is that still underway? Okay, that part we got, all Right. Number two, all right? It's talks about future repentance. Have they, have they repented in any meaningful way? No, all right. So we know those two things are still in effect. We can say, and we do know this, Christ has not returned in his second advent. Can we agree? So, he hasn't returned, and those two points are are still true. According to Schofield, when he returns, that's when they're going to get the land, and that's when they will repent. So, then the only way to argue this is time will tell, right? Time will tell, right? I just know this. It seems like something significant is going to have to happen to get them to repent. They didn't even repent when he came the first time. So you, you, you can could, you could make, make an argument there. I do know, Amos chapter nine, has that ever occurred? No, that hasn't ever occurred. And it seems there, we could use Amos nine because it does seem to, does Amos nine seem to imply the return of Christ? Everybody look at it. Go back to Amos chapter 9, verses 9 through 14, and see if if we can establish the fact that way. Amos chapter 9. Y'all look at it for yourselves. I'm not going to read it this time to you. Amos chapter 9. Let's see if we can establish, see if we can prove this point using a different way of thinking. Amos chapter 9, nine through 14, if, if you don't remember the reference. 9 through 14. See if you can find it. Anything that would you think you say, yeah, this would, this would have to prove it. Obviously, I may not be finding it. Okay. Okay. Okay, okay, does it have anything else in there that would seem to imply David ruling or or king or return so we're saying that may not be of assistance okay, all right, so all right, so then we. Okay, well, Revelation 19 is, that, well, we think, well, see, most believe Revelation 19 isn't clear, so yeah. So, all right, so then this is the way we should approach this, okay? Because remember, we're not bound by a system, right? We're not bound by a system. So this is what I would say based off what he's saying. I will say dispersion is proven, it's a historical fact, and it's a present reality. Agreed? Israel's lack of repentance is a historical fact and a present reality. True it is a historical and present reality that Christ has not returned in his second advent. Agreed? We can agree that Amos 9, 9 through 14, if we even take it remotely literal, has not happened yet. Agreed? Okay, so therefore, we, all we can say is, some of these things we know have not happened, and if the return of the Lord is the key that makes some of these things occur, well, then we won't know until he returns. Agreed? Okay, that's how I would say it, all right? Now, next, what was number four of the Palestinian covenant? Restoration of the land, all right? Restoration of the land, all right? Or restoration to the land, I should say, not of the land, to the land. Restoration to the land. Has Israel been restored to the land? No, so once again, we we know that that's a present reality. Now, let's look at all the scriptures that tries to back this up, you ready? There's a, a number of them. Go to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah 11. All right, thinking caps on. All right, here we go. Isaiah 11. All right, verse 11. Isaiah 11, verse 11. Everybody there? All right, here we go. What's going to happen here? I'm going to go verse 10 for context, okay? Isaiah 11, verse 10. And in that, okay, we've seen that phrase in numerous times, right? All meaning that the day had not occurred at that point, and we still think that it's future. There shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people to it, shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. Who do we think the root of Jesse is? We think that's Christ. Now this has Christ. Now we have something maybe much more dogmatic. Agreed? Okay, verse 11. And it shall come to pass, and that day, that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria, from Egypt, uh, Pethras, from Cush, uh, Elam, uh, Shinar, uh, Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. And he shall set up an ensign for the nations, and shall assemble the outcast of Israel, and gather together dispersed of... Dispersed from where? Of Judah, from the four corners of the earth. The envy also of Ephraim shall depart, and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off, Ephraim and not... Uh, Ephraim shall not envy Judah and Judah shall not vex Ephraim. What does that seem to imply? A united kingdom. Has that ever occurred? Has never occurred. Has never occurred, right? Have they been returned to the land? No. Okay, what seems to be the thing that's going to predicate this or set this into motion? According to this verse, it's open book, or these verses. The root of Jesse, the root of Jesse is the thing that's going to kick this off, right? Okay, if that's the thing that's going to kick this off, that seems to be who would have to return. Christ, did this happen in the first coming? No, so now we may have something to be able to prove what he has already stated in the Palestinian covenant. Does that make sense? All right, verse 14, but they shall fly upon the shoulders of the Philistines toward the west. They shall spoil them of the east together. They shall lay their hand upon Edom and Moab and all the children of Ammon shall obey them. And the Lord shall utterly destroy the tongue of the Egyptians, uh, the tongue of the Egyptian sea. And with the mighty wind, shall he shake his hand over the river and shall smite it in the seven streams and make men. And then you see, you get the idea, you get the whole concept going on here, right? Can we, that seems to imply that this, I think we can say this has never occurred. All right, now some may try to argue that it has. I will say there's no way that has ever occurred. All right, now go to Jeremiah 23, which we've covered. Jeremiah 23. Okay, uh, Jeremiah chapter 23. Now, uh, the heading Schofield has for Jeremiah 23 is the future restoration and conversion of Israel. Right? And then what Schofield wants us to look at, instead of looking at the whole chapter, he wants us to look at verses 3 through 8. Jeremiah 23, starting at verse 3. And what do we read? I will gather the remnant of my flock out of... All the countries, whether I have driven them, and will bring them again to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increased. Does that not sound like Amos? It does. And I will set up shepherds over them, which shall feed them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall they be lacking, saith the Lord. That sounds like everything's going to be perfect. Has that occurred yet? No, it has not. Behold, the days come with the Lord. I will raise unto David a... Righteous branch, a branch, and a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. Right? That's seeming to be like a far-reaching power, does it not? In whose days? Which day? Whose day? Which, who is he referring to? All right, the righteous branch of David. Yes? Okay. That's whom? We believe that's to be Christ, Right? Uh, In his days, Judah shall be saved. Oh, wait, what does that sound like? It sounds like a certain verse in the book of Romans. Who can find it? We've talked about this now countless times. Who can find it? Cannot stress it. In the book of Romans... Romans who can find it I'm Trying to get all these concepts to come together for you See who can find it There's a something about Israel being saved in Romans Yeah where where could that be I wonder 1126. Remember the very important chapter of Romans 11 to this entire concept? Right? Do we go to verse 25 for a little bit of context? For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceit, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fulfill, fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so. All Israel shall be saved, as it is written, "There shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob." What is he uh, referencing there? What is he referencing in uh, Romans eleven twenty six? Yeah, but what he's quoting from something? What is he quoting from? He's quoting from the Old Testament, and then look what it says in the next verse for this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. Whose sins is he going to take away? Israel's sins. Okay, all right. So back to uh, Jeremiah 23 isn't very much in agreement with that, right? Because he's going to do what? Yeah, in that days Judah shall be saved and Israel shall dwell safely and, and this is the name whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness, why is that so important in verse 6? Why why, what is so significant about verse 6 to this entire discussion? It's His righteousness. Who is their righteousness? The Lord is their righteousness. Why is that important? This is not practical righteousness. This is not something they do. It's not like they started being good people. This is what, what kind of righteousness is this referred to? Imputed righteousness, the only righteousness that matters because our practical righteousness will never be righteous enough, right? So this demonstrates that they will be... So let's go through the Palestinian covenant again. Number one, dispersion for disobedience. Number two, future repentance of Israel. Number three, the return of the Lord, which that one we, we, we said we don't know for sure, right? but we, we have some ways of looking at it. Number four kind of proves number three in a lot of ways, Right? Because it has restoration of the land in Isaiah 11. What seems to come before the restoration of the land? No, Christ, remember? He's going to raise an ensign of Jesse or a root of Jesse. He's going to, remember all those things that he referenced there? Okay, Isaiah 11. Jeremiah 23, 3 through 8. Once again, what's going to happen? There's a restoration to the land, but what seems to come before it? Christ as a righteous branch, right? right, Everybody see that? Are you sure y'all understand this? We gotta make sure, because if you don't understand it, then the whole thing's falling apart at this point. Are we got it? Are we sure? Okay, I'll give a test next week and we'll see how well we do, okay? Because like this is like, yeah, this is super important. All right, next, Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel 37. Yeah, the the, the chapter that's most, oh man, we want to talk about how messed up this chapter is when people preach it, okay? Okay, well, because they turn it into an evangelistic message about salvation, and this is not about that. This is about what? What is Ezekiel 37 about? Ezekiel 37 is about what? I want to make sure everyone has this down. What is Ezekiel 37 about? It's the restoration of Israel. It's the restoration of Israel. The restoration of Israel. Or you can call it the salvation of Israel. I cannot stress that enough, right? Ezekiel 37, that's what it's about. If you go walk into most churches on a Sunday and they preach from Ezekiel 37, what is it going to be about? Your salvation. Yeah. That's not what it's about. It's... Look, I was taught to preach it the other way as well, but it's just, that's not what it's about. There's just no way to draw that conclusion, all right? So he wants us to look at Ezekiel 37, 21 through 25. I know it makes for a good sermon, right? You got dry bones, and you, I mean, you got all that, you got, you, I mean, come on, you can make it really, you can preach it really good, but that, a good sermon does not always equal what? Truth, it does not, okay? It does not, Ezekiel 37. He wants us to look at what verses 21 to 25. What do we find? Ezekiel 37, 21, and say unto them, I wonder who the them is referencing. Okay, possibly it could be, right? Unto them, thus saith the Lord God, behold, I will take the children of Israel. Listen, Israel's being mentioned. Everyone see that? I, I could go through this chapter and try to demonstrate this over and over and over, but from among the heathen, whether they be gone, it will gather them on every side and bring them unto their own land. How many different times do we have to read that and how many different books and how many different promises? The promise is repeated countless times that he's going to do what? He's going to gather them. Do we see that in Deuteronomy 30? Whether the word return there is not is there or not, right? He's going to restore them to the land. This is the promise over and over and over and over. They're going to be restored to the land. They're going to be restored to, to the land, all right? Uh, what's the next? Is it what verse did we just stop in? Uh, uh, end of 21? Okay, yes, okay. Um, and uh, then saith the Lord God, behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, whether they be gone, and will bring them on every side and bring them into their Own land, there's that phrase again, own land, own land. Now, please note, we're in Ezekiel here. This is is now new covenant territory where we're going to. Verse 22, and I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king to them all, and they shall be no more two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more at all. Has that ever occurred? No, who could that king be? Yeah, you don't have a lot of options, do you? Right? You could go, you could go, some argue in the actual resurrection of David, right? But I don't, I'm not, I'm not going with that. I'm not, I don't go with that. I think it has to be Christ. I think it has to be Christ. All right. Uh, verse 23, neither shall they defile themselves anymore with idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions, but I will save them out of their dwelling places wherein they have sinned, and will cleanse them, so they shall be my people, and I will be their God. What does he just seem to describe right there? How, how, how well off are they going to be? Spiritually. Sounds like they're gonna be perfect. Has any of that even come close to occurring? Has it even come close to occurring in the church? Unless you, the only way you can say it comes to close in the church is you've got to allegorize this to death, right? And then you can only refer to the positional reality of Christians, not the practical reality of Christians. Agreed? Do <laughs> <To> what? <laughs> oh, yeah, right. Well, yeah, they may try to claim that, but right. But okay, here we go. So, which is, yeah, not, not a not a good thing that happened in church history. Okay, but that's a whole different problem. All right. Okay, so, uh, well, there's more. I mean, look at verse 24. This is why some believe in a resurrection of David. Look at verse 24. And David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Okay, I believe that that's a reference to Christ as the Davidic king. All right, that's the only way, that's the only thing that makes any sense to me. All right, so, what are the parts of the Palestinian covenant again? Number one. Dispersion four, disobedience. Number two, future repentance of Israel. Number three, return of the Lord. We may not be able to prove the return of the Lord with Deuteronomy 30 what? Three, but we do believe we can demonstrate it through all these other passages, right? So Christ will return. Number four, restoration to the land. There is no question that is promised about how many times? A bunch. It, it, probably at least 10. At least 10. It's repeated over and over and over again. Right? And to me, when anyone wants to start talking about dispensationalism, this is the part we have to focus the most on because this is really what distinguishes it from any other, the other systems. Is a proof, I believe that this was literal promises to literal Israel that has to be which, fulfilled which way? Literally. All right. That's, that's where we, you end up here. Okay. Next. Number five, we're trying to go through these as fast as we can. Number five, what do you think it is? Look at verse six of Deuteronomy 30. Look at Deuteronomy 30, verse six. Okay, well, I wanted you to try to find it from Deuteronomy 36, but okay. All right, but look at Deuteronomy 30, verse six, and tell me what happens here. And the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy that thou mayest live. I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 36 has never occurred where? In the history of Israel or in any human being, including those who are saved. No one loves the Lord thy God with all their heart, mind, body, and soul. And anyone who claims that has got bigger problems than they need some mental health because they... They're delusional. That's just, it's not happened, okay? You you don't do that, neither do I do. None of us do that, all right? So immediately, you know, Deuteronomy 36 is promising something for Israel that has never occurred. It seems to be promising what kind of conversion? A national conversion, because it seems to be speaking of all of them, not just them, and, and it's their children as well. Yeah, God, obviously God has to do that, all right? Now, that corresponds with which passage? Romans eleven, very good. Twenty six to twenty seven. We don't need to read that again. And then he gives another cross reference. What cross reference does he want us to look this time? Hosea two, fourteen through sixteen. Hosea two, fourteen through sixteen. Let's look at Hosea two, fourteen through sixteen. Okay. Do we need to do sword drills here to get people familiar with the Bible? Okay. Hosea two fourteen through sixteen. Do what? What'd you say? Okay. <laughs> okay. Hosea two fourteen through sixteen. Here we go. Hosea two fourteen through sixteen. Everybody ready? Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably unto her, and I will give her vineyards for thence, and the valley of Achor, for a door of hope. And shall will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. I wonder who that could be referring to. Israel, right? And it shall be at that day that the Lord, uh, uh, saith, the Lord, that thou shalt call me she right? And th- shall call me no more That's basically be all, right? Right? No more be all because there are no more. Meaning, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? No more idolatry. Right. This is this is a symbolic. Now, this is somewhat symbolic the way he's using it, poetic language, to basically say what? I'm going to restore you. There's going to be, there's going to be something positive that comes from this, right? And then look at verse 17 for I will take what uh, names from you? tailum out of her mouth and they shall know they shall no more be remembered by their name. And in that day will I make a covenant for them, all right? So there is the the uh, national conversion of Israel. Has that occurred yet? No. Oh, there you go. Oh, yeah, uh, there we go. Forever. What verse is that? 19. There you go. Clearly, that's not occurred. Everybody understand that? That's not occurred. So there's going to have to be national conversion for Israel. But what seems to have to come first? We believe Christ has to come back. There has to be, the branch has to be there. All of those descriptions that have been said. He must be in place. So the second advent must occur before Israel is restored to the land and there's national conversion. And there will be national conversion of them. All right? Now we have number six. Everybody ready? Number six is the judgment of Israel's oppressors. This is a judgment upon all of those who have oppressed them. This would include whom? All those who oppressed them in the past? All the nations that have oppressed Israel. Yeah, we read that. In Re- that's why. That's why I pointed out the word nations in Revelation 19. You see why I was stressing that. All right, there's lots of cross references here. We can just look at them quickly. Go to. Uh, we'll look at verse seven of Deuteronomy 30. What does Deuteronomy 37 say? Upon thine enemies. And on them that hate thee and which persecuted thee. He's going to go after the ones who mistreated Israel. All right. Now we have this, this one. Just make sure that we know. We don't have a lot of major. Well, actually, I take that back. How could some, uh, how would one system of theology handle number six? They would say the persecution of the enemies would be persecuting the enemies of the church. Not of Israel. They would, once again, they would put the church there. That's not what that's referencing. It's the nations of Israel. It's going after those who have persecuted the nation of Israel. So let's look at these quickly. Isaiah 14, 1 through 2. Isaiah 14, 1 through 2. All right. Isaiah 14, 1 through 2. We won't look at all the cross references. We will look at one because I think it's important that Isaiah fourteen verse one: For the Lord will have mercy on Jacob and will yet choose Israel and set them in their own. See how many times has this got to be repeated? Like this is this is when, when you can get very. Fr- this is when I can get very frustrated with theological debates because if we can't figure this out, and, and just think two thousand years of church history and there's still no agreement on this. How many verses does it take saying the same thing over and over and over and over before you think most people could be like, I think Israel's going to have to be restored to their land. <laughs> like, like if it, do you realize if you take all the verses that talk about Israel being restored to the land, I think you could, listen, there's probably more verses to support that than the doctrine of the Trinity, the deity of Christ, baptism, church membership, or how to do Lord's Supper. But then people will say, you're wrong. You're just wrong. You're wrong. And it's like, I I don't know what else I can do. So then you plead with people to do what? Look up every verse where Israel is concerned. Look up every verse. And then they won't look them up and still tell you that you're wrong. And sometimes it's just like, I don't know what else you can do. I I mean, can it get much clearer than this? And then what does he say? Verse two, and the people shall take them and bring them into their place and the house of Israel shall possess them in the land of the the Lord for servants and handmaids and they shall take them captive whose captives they were and they shall rule over their oppressors. Meaning what's going to happen? Judgment's going to come upon those who oppress them. Now he also has Joel here. You can just write down the reference. We won't look it up for time's sake. Joel three, one through eight. And then... Guess what he has? Matthew 25. Matthew 25. We have to look at Matthew 25. Uh, The Joel one, I would like to look at, but for time's sake. Matthew 25, we have to look at this one. Matthew 25, 31 through 46. Remember, there is so much debate over this judgment, it's not even, oh my goodness. We, we, could, we could probably spend a couple of years just looking at all the different views on this. Matthew 25, 31 through 46. Now, whenever we talk about judgments, what are the basic systems within, um, Ameri- uh, within Christianity? Some believe there's how many judgments? One. Others believe that there are multiple judgments. Okay. Now, how you handle this depends on what you do with, say, this judgment, because you have the judgment in Matthew 25, starting in verse 31. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, this judgment occurs when Christ does what? Returns. And all the holy angels with him, then shall he be seated upon the throne of his glory. This seems to be Christ, this seems to imply this judgment occurs when Christ comes to, to the earth and does what? Sits on the throne. Right, This seems to be different than, say, the great white throne judgment, which seems to take place where? In heaven. All right, So there seems to be a difference. Now, people would argue that, no, there isn't, but look what happens in verse 32. And before him shall be gathered nations. Do you see that that's very interesting here? Not individuals. Nations. Now, obviously, nations are made up of people, but they're described as nations. What happens? He shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divideth his sheep uh, from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on the right hand, but the goats on the left. And, he sh- and shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come ye, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Who could this be that's about to inherit the kingdom? Now, a lot of people could debate this. Some people would say it's whom? Some people could say it's Israel, right? Verse 35, but what's the basis? For I was hungered and you gave me meat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came unto me. Only problem is that doesn't sound like Israel. So who could this be? All right, well, this may be those who had who had. Shown righteousness? I don't know. We, we have a lot of ways of trying to look at this. Then look at verse 37. Then shall the righteous say unto him, Lord, when saw we thee hungered and fed thee, or thirsty and gave thee drink? So look, when did we do this? He says, when when saw we thee a stranger and took thee in? And look at what he says. And the king answered, Verily I say unto you, and so much as you've done it, unto the one of the least of these my... Brethren, you have done it unto me. So this seems to be, this is not referencing Israel in this sense, that the people who are about to be given the kingdom, these tend to be those who has treated Christ's brethren well. Who are his brethren? Israel. So some say this is a judgment of the nations, and it's based on how they have treated Israel. And then what happens to those who have treated them in an unfair way or not in a kind way? Yes, he punishes them. Go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. That this is a judgment upon the nations, specifically the Gentile nations, on how they have treated Israel. Not everyone agrees with that. He quotes it here to show what's going to happen. He uses this as a proof. which point? The judgment of Israel's oppressors. That Matthew 25 is a judgment upon how people had treated Israel. Now that's a significant, if that's true, then how a nation treats Israel will determine their basically being included in the millennial kingdom or being excluded. That's how some could interpret this. Others will say it's not that. Now Catholics like it because it shows a judgment based on, works, okay? Others like it because they say, your works prove whether you are saved, which then means you're being justified. The whole thing becomes problematic. If it's a judgment upon the nations, then okay, then maybe, maybe, I don't know. It it, it becomes a, it's a complicated, there's no simple way to get around it, but he quoted it here, alright? Now that brings us to the last and final point. Oh no, uh, national prosperity And he looks at verse nine. Look at Deuteronomy 30, verse nine. What do we read in Deuteronomy 30, verse nine? And the Lord thy God will make thee plenteous in every work of thine hand and the fruit of thy body and the fruit of thy cattle and the fruit of the land for good. For the Lord again will rejoice over thee for good as he rejoiced over thy fathers. And guess what other verse he quotes? Amos chapter nine, 11 through 14, which we've already read. There is the Palestinian covenant. You know, I know probably more about the Palestinian Covenant than you did when you got here this morning. Agreed or disagreed? Agreed. I hope so. Okay, all right. That's the goal here, right? Land, no, land, 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 land. Okay, land is constantly referenced, right? All right? So let's go through the points. Let's see if you can do this with your eyes closed. All right. All right. You can look at whatever you need. You ready? Number one, dispersion for disobedience. Look at that. Number two repentance in the dispersion, right? Right? Dep- depend, uh, the repentance will happen in the dispersion. Number three, the return. Now, now, we believe number three didn't completely prove itself, but we believe the rest of the scriptures proved it. So we're going we're gonna to add it. Agreed? All right, the return of the Lord. Next? Restoration into, to the land. Restoration to the land. All right, they're going to get the land. Next? Okay, or national conversion, national conversion, national conversion. The national conversion of whom? Israel. Next, the judgment of their oppressors. And then number seven, national prosperity. What can we say about all of that? It has not happened in any way, shape, or form. Can we try to make that say it happened in the church? It would be different. It would be, you see all the hermeneutical hoops you would have to jump through, Right? Israel would have to no longer be Israel. Land would have to no longer be land. Nation would have to no longer be na- nation. And it basically becomes now, and then all the promises are what? Spiritual. And then when it says that they're going to do all these wonderful things, it would have to be about our position. Uh, you could try to make it work, but here's the problem. If you try to make it work that way, to the original recipients who are hearing these words... Why is, he, why is he sending people to tell the nation who is suffering that there's a future glory coming if the future glory is not, has nothing to do with them or their seed? Remember how it mentioned them and their seed multiple times? Why would he say that? Because he would say, hey, this has no promise for you, none of you, just forget all of you, you're done. Like it would be easier to send a prophet going, hey, God gave you a chance, you failed, you're done. But he doesn't do that because the, the, promise, the ultimate promise that he made in which covenant? The Abrahamic covenant, which was unconditional. Remember, they fell, and the dispensation, do they pass or fail? Fail. And the other covenants, do they pass or fail? Fail. Fail. The one covenant that's unconditional and by grace, they don't lose anything because that one covenant is by grace. Everything else, they fall short, they fail, they fail over and over and over. And God will ultimately have to step in to do what? To save them. Ultimately it is, but it it laid out the conditions of for them when they went into the land. If they do this, you're going to get cursed. And that did happen. Like if you read all of Deuteronomy, like 29, 30, 31, remember it lays out, hey, if you do this, you get all these blessings. If you do this, you're going to get all these curses. What did they get? The curses, they failed and then they were dispersed, but contained within it are the promises of what God will ultimately do based off the Abrahamic covenant. So the, the the test, well, and so it's conditional. It doesn't really have to have the test because that's the dispensation. But in a sense, they, it is conditional. Hey, if you go into the land, this, if they would have went into the land and met the conditions, they would have gotten nothing but blessing and wonderful and it would have been great. But they didn't. So they got the curses. But then God, because of the covenant of promise, says, hey, even though you've failed in all of this, I'm ultimately going to take care of it all for you. But you're right. Ultimately, it's going to rely on God. But what's the basis of it relying on God? Not so. It, it, the basis of it is the is the Abrahamic covenant. Does that make sense? The Abraham, because that's why he re- refers to many times on the covenant I made with your fathers. Because of the covenant I made with your fathers. That's Palestine. He's referencing making he's referencing the Abrahamic covenant. But that's a good question. So it is conditional. In what sense? When you go in, because remember, this is being spoken before when? Before they go into the land. And they go into the land and immediately they start felling and immediately what happens? Curse, 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 punishment, 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 punishment. punishment. Until God has to basically say, okay, now here are the promises I made because of this other covenant. And what am I going to do for you? All, well, no, from the Abrahamic covenant. Abrahamic, Abrahamic, Abrahamic. Everything is based off the Abrahamic. Now he's going to reestablish the new, which then will do what? Reinstate the land promise and once again state that he's going to have to be the one to do what for them? He's going to have to do it all for them. He's going to have to do everything. It's already kind of being hinted at here. Does that make sense? Okay, all right. Now, you could argue, should he have saved some of these things for the new covenant? You could make an argument here, right? Because some of those promises do sound like new covenant promises. But he places it with the Palestinian covenant and the reason he places it is because Deuteronomy 30: 1 through 10 seems to encompass everything. The curse and the future blessings. So because Deuteronomy 30 right there falls into the place of the Palestinian covenant, that's why he places it there. Does that make sense? All right, I hope so. Okay, there, we'll stop right there because there's no way we can get to uh, the dispensation of grace, is there? No, all right, so we'll stop. All right, well, God, we come before you this afternoon. Thank you, Lord, for an opportunity to try to understand a very important aspect of theology and of scripture. Lord, uh, help us see that these promises are absolutely perfect for Israel. And because they can trust those promises, we can trust the promises given to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...